final season of Best Girl Grip. I'm your host, Nicole Davis, and this is the podcast that navigates the film industry through the lens of the women doing just that. This week's guest is Vicky Brown, the Senior Executive of Sales and Distribution at the BFI. Before the BFI, she was at Together Films, where she was Head of Acquisitions, Sales and Distribution, a company that is one of the leaders in social impact entertainment. She was responsible for setting up the International Sales Department and oversaw the acquisition of In Camera, the first feature from director Nakash Khalid. Prior to her arrival at Together Films, Vicky was the Director of International Sales at Altitude. At Altitude, she represented such diverse and critically acclaimed titles such as Rocks by Sarah Gavron, Ali and Ava by Clio Barnard, The Princess by Ed Perkins, Calm With Horses by Nick Rowland and Diego Maradona by Asif Kapadia. Vicky has also previously worked at Focus Features International, where she handled sales on numerous titles, including Cloud Atlas and Moonrise Kingdom. In addition, she seeks to champion underrepresented voices in the film industry. Vicky is the co-founder, alongside former podcast guest Chi Tai, of Milk Tea Films, an organisation which looks to shine a spotlight on East and Southeast Asian talent through screenings and events, with a goal to building inclusion, communities and audiences. Milk Tea was announced as a Film London Lodestar in 2023, and in 2022 and 2023 was nominated for a Big Screen Award. All of which to say, Vicky is incredibly hardworking and a wonderful person to have in this industry and therefore on this podcast. We talk about how she unearthed sales as the aspect of the film industry that she could be good at, what sales agents actually do, how she copes with the intensity of festivals and markets, working at altitude when they were just starting out, how she knows when it's time for a change, founding Milk Tea and why that brings her joy, and what better East and Southeast Asian representation in cinema could look like. I should also mention that Vicky has co-hosted a similar podcast in the past called Roll Credits, where they interview people who work behind the scenes in roles such as programmer, colourist, script supervisor, puppet painter and gaffer, so seek that one out after you've finished up here. This is episode 133 of Best Girl Grip. Thank you so much for joining me. It's a, a real pleasure to have you on Best Girl Grip. I've been starting this um, set of interviews by asking guests if there is a, a moment, a person or experience that really kind of kick-started their desire to work in the film industry. Um, well, firstly, thank you very much for inviting me on. This is very exciting. Um, I'm used to interviewing other people. I'm not used to being interviewed myself, so it's a bit of a treat. I was thinking about this. I can't really recall a specific moment in time or a person that made me think about pursuing film as a career. I know it sounds very cliched, but I have always been interested in film and watching film. And I think that started from quite a young age. So I I wasn't born in this country. So I was born in Hong Kong and I lived there and Korea for most of my childhood. And back then there wasn't always a huge amount of choice when it came to films. So I I used to go to the, the kind of like video rental store. It wasn't even a blockbuster. It was whatever the local equivalent was and just worked my way through, through the films there. I think I must have, that's probably how I watched all the Police Academy movies. Um, like growing up, I didn't have that luxury of high-speed internet. We didn't have streaming platforms. 
So I just ended up watching whatever was at the cinema, whatever was on TV. And in a way, I think because I didn't really have a choice, it exposed me to a lot more films from around the world. And so I have like I have really fond memories of going to the cinema as a kid, watching a lot of Disney films on, on VHS. And then musicals was another big thing. Love those. And I really anything with Paul Newman. So just, I think just that love of a different variety. So I started at a really young age. And as I got a bit older, as I went through secondary school and university, I knew I wanted to try and do something that I really enjoyed. And did you have a sense of what that could look like? What realm that would be in? You know, where did you even begin with kind of stepping into that world? I had no, I, I had no idea. I I knew that I probably wasn't suited to production. I, I think I was more interested in the behind the scenes and how the mechanics of that worked. And I, I didn't really see myself as a writer. I would love to direct, but I don't know if I'm naturally talented. Uh, so I think when I was at university, I didn't choose to study film, although I had considered it. I did history instead. It was a subject I loved. And again, I think it, it's to do with storytelling, you know, passing on stories. And then left uni and then thought, right, okay, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to try and make this work. And I was lucky enough that I could still live at home at the time. So I didn't have to worry about paying the bills. And then I realized very quickly that not very many jobs are advertised in the film industry, especially at the entry level. And I was lucky enough to come across an ad for an internship at the London Film Festival. So I thought, oh, London Film Festival, what a perfect way to, you know, to start my to start my kind of journey into film. And I I did an internship there and thankfully they liked me enough to invite me back. So I then came back the following two years, I think, to be their programming guest coordinator. And it was a, it was a really it was a really great experience. I think unless you work in the film festivals, you don't actually realize what exposure you get to the rest of the industry. So not only do you get to watch all these amazing, fantastic films and dealing with filmmakers, but you're also having to deal with sales agents. You also have to work with distributors and understanding how films reach audiences. Yeah, absolutely. It gives you kind of this breadth of the kind of whole ecosystem. And and did that help you, again, kind of specify perhaps what area you could go into or what you might be good at? No, <laughs> I, no, I, I think this is probably a theme of my life, really, that I, I sort of stumble into things and then go, oh, actually, I'm, I'm all right at this. And then I end up doing it. I think one of one of the things that I've noticed that growing up in, and in my career, I just, I just want to know as much as I can. I want to try new things, learn new things, learn about you know, learn about things that I'm not necessarily involved with. And so I felt that, okay, I've done festivals and I wanted to try something else. So I thought, okay, you know, I have a huge respect for people who work at festivals. It's it's really, really exhausting. The hours are long. It's really intense. You can't really relax during that whole period. And as much as I enjoyed it, I thought I, I just, I feel like I need to see what else there is. So again, I, you know, wrote to different companies, tried out for different internships. I did some temp work. So I was at Turner Broadcasting for a bit and at Tartan for a bit. So that, that was really interesting to observe. And then I, I came across advert for this 12 month paid internship scheme run by Diva Apprenticeships. And 
there were a bunch of different companies you could choose from. There were uh, film publicity companies, production companies, post-production houses, and there was one position there available for Focus Features. And I thought, oh, I know Focus Features. I, I you know, I, I know that logo. I know those films. And not only did the company itself appeal to me, but out of all the internships on offer, it was one where you were able to work in all different departments. So you could work in sales, you could work in development and production, you could work in publicity and marketing. And I thought, well, I don't really know exactly what it is I want to do. So I might as well try everything and see if anything fits. So I applied and yeah, thankfully they liked me. The rest, as they say, is history. But I guess given as well that you got to taste all these different departments, I'm wondering what about sales appealed to you having, you know, had that experience in the sales department? I didn't really know anything about sales before I started. I kind of understood distribution and I understood that sales agents were involved, but I didn't really know what the day-to-day looked like. So when I started, I I realized that it actually was a really interesting part of the film value chain that not a lot of people really understand or know about or really appreciate. And I think it spoke to my desire to know a lot about how things work. So I realized that when you're a sales agent, you can board a project at any time. So you can you can look at something that's right at the early development stage, or you can look at a completed title. And the fact that you follow that journey of that film right through production, right through distribution and exhibition was really interesting to me. So it didn't, you know, it. I had a great overview of how the industry worked, even though I wasn't on set, even though I wasn't, you know, creating the, the marketing assets. That was what really appealed to me. And I think also because I came from an international background, the idea of having that international mindset really appealed. The idea of understanding the different quirks of individual territories, how you know, horror is popular in some territories, how you can't sell films about ghosts in other territories, all these like really specific things I find really interesting. So having tried all the different departments, it felt that sales was where I wanted to be. That's really interesting about, you know, the idea that, yeah, you can board it kind of really early or as you say, like once it's completed, what are the different like virtues of the different stages of coming on, you know, earlier or later? Talk to me about that. I'm really intrigued by that. I would say that sales agents would like to come on as early as possible because it allows them to shape what that international rollout looks like. It, you know, sales agents aren't there to dictate how you should make your film. Well, at least I don't think they should anyway. But but at least when they have those early conversations with the producers, with the filmmakers, they can say, okay, you know, you have your heart set on doing a big release of this territory, but actually this actor perhaps isn't very well known in that territory or this scene in particular might cause censorship issues or, you know, have we thought about doing a co-production, maybe introducing different elements to widen the appeal of the film. So a sales agent can get on early and help guide the project. And then, you know, the the more time we have to prepare, I think the better the campaign can be. So we have a lot longer to think about, okay, what does that festival roll out? Is this a Cannes film? Is this a film that is maybe more suited at one of the, you know, one of the smaller festivals? You know, which distributors do we think we should speak to early? Do you think, you know, is there a particular distributor thing? Oh, you know what, this has, 
you know, their name all over, maybe we can get them to pre-buy it. So I think coming in early is really great. Having said that, the market at the moment is really challenging. You know, I've seen it just get harder and harder throughout the years. And I think a lot of sales agents, when they're speaking to buyers who are telling them, I'm not pre-buying, you know, I'm waiting to see the finished film, that kind of travels back up the chain. So sales agents are then turning around to producers going, actually, I, you know, I don't know at this moment in time, which home, like what are the right homes for this film? So I'm going to have to wait and see the finished film myself. So it is, you know, there are sales agents would rather be on early, but at the same time, if it feels that it's not such a kind of obvious sell or, you know, or they deem it to be slightly challenging or risky, they may choose to wait and see. And then going back to kind of the career path, I'm wondering, you know, at the end of that Focus Features um, internship or placement, did you have another job lined up having come out of that? You know, how did you transition out of that? Because obviously when you've got a year, you know, it's not a long time and then you could be thrown back out into the industry. You know, it's quite tough. I was very lucky at the end of that one year internship, a role became available at Focus to be Alison Thompson's assistant. So she at that time was a co-president of Focus Features International. And I'd obviously worked quite a lot with her during that year long internship. So a job became available as her assistant and they offered it to me. So I took it and I stayed at Focus for another I think three and a half years, starting off as her exec assistant and then getting to the point where I said, I feel like I can, you know, I I feel like I can do the assistant stuff now. I'd like to try something else. So they were very kind in giving me a handful of territories that I would then handle. So I then started selling to those territories and it was really exciting. I, I really enjoyed the travel. I really enjoyed meeting with people and the territories I started with were ones in East and Southeast Asia. So I was very happy with that because I knew the territory. I felt like I had an understanding of what their tastes were. And it just developed from there. So I stayed her assistant and sold at the same time. And then it got to the point where I thought, okay, I I need to be able to take that next step. And so I was aware of the different companies at the time. And I knew I wanted to stay in sales. And I had heard about Altitude and how they had just started up. And I knew Mike Ronigal was heading up the sales division. So I just sent him an email and said, hey, I'd love to chat and find out more about what your plans are for the company, what your ambitions are, what that looks like. So we sat down, had a chat, and then he was telling me what the plans were for for the company. It sounded really interesting. And then we started talking about how I could possibly fit in. Uh, So yeah, it was, again, it it wasn't something that was advertised. It was just something that I thought was a good step. And and having worked in that studio environment, I know Focus, you know, isn't kind of independent, but it's still under that banner of Universal. So I wanted to see what would it be like in a true independent and a company that was starting out, which was a bit scary because they hadn't, when I, when I started Altitude, we hadn't sold anything. There was no distribution division. There were just six of us in a little office in Soho, but it was, it was a really, it was a really exciting time, but it was, I remember the first few weeks, it was a bit of a culture shock to move from focus to Altitude. I mean, lots of questions already arising. I think the first one is is whether or not you were like naturally good at sales. Is that something that you just found that you could do? Or was it something you had to kind of think about and hone and, and, and get better at? I'd still tell people that I don't think I'm a natural salesperson. I've done it for a long time, but 
and no one no one really believes me when I say this, but I I doesn't I don't think it comes naturally to me because I'm quite an introverted person. So going out and meeting lots of new people is very exhausting. But in a way, I I remember starting out at Focus and I remember being really nervous and just having to hold all that information in your head about the different projects that, you know, who the director is, what their credits were, producers, cast, budget level, what you were asking for the film, when the film was going to be delivered, all these like bits of information. And I used to write it all out on a piece of paper and just have it in front of me at meetings. And then the more I did it, the more it just, it was like muscle memory. And so now I can very comfortably go into a meeting. And because I also know the buyers anyway, so we have that kind of relationship. So I can just go in it and start talking about the film. But I don't necessarily know whether I'm good at pitching a project. I mean, people have bought from me, so clearly I'm doing something right. But I think it was just I had to find my own way of doing it. And I wasn't going to be the sort of hard no salesperson. I wasn't going to be that kind of like, come on, you've got to do it. Like, you know, sell, sell, sell. I wasn't that. I I had to find something that worked for me that I felt that I felt was authentic. And hopefully that comes across when I deal with buyers and they understand that I know what it is they want and I'm not going to try and sell them everything if it's not right for them. And you referenced altitude being a culture shock. And I'm wondering how you adjusted to that. You know, did you have to also change the way you worked or the way you sold in order to kind of fit in with the culture at altitude? How did that work? It was hard at first because when I was at Focus, it was really easy to get meetings with people. And you had the comfort of saying, this film is going to be distributed by Focus Features in North America which already gives buyers a sense of reassurance. But with the altitude, when I started, even though Mike was hugely respected and, I, and I'd been selling for a few years at that point, we didn't have a track record. We hadn't delivered anything. So, you know, no one knew for sure whether the company would, would last, what it stood for, how reliable it was. So getting those meetings, especially with some of the bigger players, felt a little harder. It was, oh, hey, you know, we know you, but, you know, we're just going to wait and see what else you have coming up. But having, you know, having done after a number of markets, and not not that many, but showing that we understood what buyers wanted, that we had a diverse range of titles and that we delivered meant that it just opened opened us up to more buyers and also more films and a greater variety of films and at different budget levels as well. But it was it was exciting. I'm really glad I did it when I did it because I don't think many people get the opportunity to be at a company that's just starting up and seeing just how much it grows and develops over the years. And that was an enormous sense of pride to be able to work with some really wonderful people and just see that company grow into what it is today is is amazing. I'd like to stay with Altitude and you know that that massive period of growth that you presided over and were kind of a, a massive part of I'm sure and I'd love to talk a little bit about you know when a company like Altitude is starting out how you strategize and how you decide you know the types of projects that you want to board just you know what that whole kind of yeah that strategy looks like and and, and how you start to pursue it and, and make it happen because it was quite an exciting thing to kind of watch from the outside to watch Altitude become this kind of prestige player in the UK distribution landscape did it feel like that from the inside? 
certainly when I started, I didn't doubt that the company would succeed, knowing who was at the company, who was running the company. But I, I didn't, I, I didn't necessarily think it would. I don't know. I, I felt maybe it would take a bit longer to to get going. But actually, sales did really well, and then distribution came on um, not too long after, and. I, I recall certain instances like when we distributed the Amy Winehouse documentary, that felt like quite a big turning point in the company's history. It felt that people were recognizing us and not just people in the industry, but, you know, members of the public like, oh, yeah, I know, I know that film. In terms of looking at the sales side of things, I think we always had a fairly diversified slate and that was quite important. You know, we did documentaries, dramas, comedies, definitely embraced a lot of first time filmmakers as well. And I always thought that was a smart move because it means that you can appeal to a variety of different buyers. There are certain buyers that maybe only buy documentaries. There are certain buyers that maybe are only looking at action films or horrors. And it means that there is something for everyone we always wanted to have films that had that theatrical potential and more importantly appealed to audiences around the world you know there were projects that we looked at that we passed on that we really liked but it just felt very specific to a certain territory and that's great for that territory but it didn't make sense from an international sales point of view and you referenced earlier how the film festival world is, you know, very intense and very stressful. But, you know, from my brief stint in sales, I found that to be very uh, stressful. You know, you're always seemingly gearing up towards attending a market and preparing for that. And I'm wondering how you manage that intensity and, and also, I guess, kept the job interesting for yourself because the film festival calendar, you know, does repeat itself. It is quite cyclical work. It is. It it is very repetitive and markets can be very intense. And I think unless you do it, you don't quite understand what it's like. The idea that you have to say the same thing every 30 minutes for days on end. It was just what I was used to. It was kind of all I'd really known. So I didn't think anything weird of it. I, I you know, there were times that Towards the end of the market, you know, you would certainly feel it. You were really tired. And I always joke that in Cannes, you can always tell the difference between a salesperson and an acquisitions person because an acquisitions person usually has a nice tan because they're out all the time. They're moving from office to office. But the salesperson just sitting there in their office all day, we, we can see the quasi, we can, you know, see the beach, but we're never outside. It is juggling juggling offers, long days and nights, negotiations. But I was very lucky to be in a team that were very supportive. And I just really liked the people I worked with. Mike was great. We had Robin and then Karina after her doing marketing. There's Jordan and Ollie and Charlie, Ellie, Gersh. I mean, like there were so many people that just made the experience really pleasurable. And also not just even on the sales side, even on the distribution side, the likes of Sheila and Delphine, who've gone on to do their own incredible things now, just that camaraderie was really wonderful. And it just made the days easier. To, I mean, I, I guess by keeping it interesting, well, there's always different, you're always selling different films. So there are different ways of approaching buyers, different materials to show. But I'm also aware that 
it's still an enormous privilege. I get to travel the world. I get to watch amazing films. I'm someone that knows what's coming out months or even years before the public do. And that and that's really exciting. But I think I always try and make it, well, I think over the years, I've, I've found ways to make it slightly easier for myself. So day one of the market, I never schedule anything before 10 a.m. Uh, I always just ease myself into it um I you know my colleagues would start at nine and I'd be sort of you know having a cup of tea and still having my like chocolate digestive biscuits I just needed a second I just needed a beat before I kind of dived into the deep end and I also found it very important to schedule friendly meetings my first few meetings so I would always schedule in people that I knew really well that I was very friendly with so if I wasn't well versed in my kind of pitch if I forgot a few things at least they were friendly faces and they they wouldn't mind that I had to refer to my notes so that was a little tip that I had and just making sure that I had enough breaks in the day to just decompress you know just step away from my desk and and have a bit of a breather totally and remember why you're there as well I think otherwise you kind of you get caught don't you in this kind of spiel and I think the passion kind of can drain away quite quickly Absolutely. And always just make sure you schedule in like, you know, just a fun dinner or drinks. Uh, It was always great kind of catching up either with colleagues or sales agents from different companies where you didn't feel that pressure to perform. You didn't feel that pressure to pitch anything. You could just sit, enjoy, maybe rant, um, you know, share bits of information, but it, it, it was relaxed. So just knowing that you had that in the calendar was really nice. And I'm wondering as well, like how personal taste comes into it and, you know, whether there are any projects, you know, at altitude that you particularly um, fought for or were proud of getting onto the slate, you know, was that a factor or are you thinking or are you being led by, you know, brand only and and the kind of things that altitude, you know, should be championing? I learned a long time ago that you're never really going to enjoy sales if you expect to love everything you sell. I think some people surprised by that they're like oh you know I I find it really difficult to sell something that I didn't really enjoy watching it's like that and that's I can totally understand that because it is always easier to sell something you love but my approach is that there is an audience for every film I started off altitude being much more of a kind of lover of drama and I didn't really watch many thrillers or horrors, but actually over the years, I've become to really appreciate them and really enjoy them and understanding that there are different ways of storytelling. Like, give me a good shark movie. <laughs> I, I just, you know, I, I, I've sold a number in my day, but actually I know people can be quite dismissive about it, but it's entertainment. It's fun. It's some, you know, it, they're films that you want to watch with your friends on the big screen you know I don't think it's I don't think it helps when people can be very I don't know snooty about particular genres of films people have their own tastes and if people enjoy watching kind of hard-hitting documentaries great if people enjoy watching slapstick comedies amazing but you know I I don't ever want to judge any particular film because not everyone's going to like the films that I like Who am I to kind of judge other people for their taste? You know, I I would say that going into sales, it was difficult at first selling things that maybe I didn't much care for. But then over the years, I I just remembered that actually it's important to, to be able to represent a variety of voices and different ways of storytelling. And I'm glad that that was something that Altitude embraced. 
And surely that's like part of keeping it interesting as well. Like if you're rolling out the same pitch and, you know, going to the same people all the time, again, that's going to get very tiring. But yeah, if you are speaking about different genres and different filmmakers and going out to different territories for these different stories, then again, I think that that must only add to the interest of the, what you do. Absolutely, absolutely. It's variety is, is really interesting. And to be able to, you know, suddenly maybe we would board a project that we felt was more of a kind of art house drama and suddenly you're like oh great now there's these people in my address book that I can actually reach out and set a meeting with because I I think I have something for them. I mean speaking of variety it it seems like you've always kind of moved to a new place just when it's like time or you know there's something that it seems to me is very kind of canny about you know how you've moved through your career and I'm wondering how you've gone about identifying when you're ready for a change and how you go about I guess manifesting that or as you say kind of approaching people and seeing if there are opportunities as and when you feel like it's the right time. I don't know whether I would describe my moves as particularly canny um I that gives an impression that I I have it my life much more sort of plotted out than I actually do it's well it's a combination of factors I think sometimes I get to a point where I feel like okay I I feel like I've hit a ceiling I feel as though there might be a few different changes maybe I could take on slightly different titles or different territories but I feel like my development has sort of plateaued and I need to try different things but I am annoyingly very fussy. <laughs> you know, I I was lucky enough to work in different companies to have been approached by different companies, but I was just very particular about what I wanted and what I wanted to achieve and who I wanted to work for. So I, I could have moved more regularly and I don't know that maybe there's an argument that I should have done, but I wanted to, I, I think I was just very cautious in how I approached the next step I always wanted to know right what can I learn there what will that look like from a professional development standpoint and a lot of the jobs that I've taken on it hasn't been through things that were advertised it was just going okay I'm interested in this particular company who can I speak to there to find out more about how they work how they're going to grow and whether there's space for me and whether I can learn something from them and they you know they can offer me something as well. Can you name some of those particularities? Like what is it you're looking for in a job? And, and perhaps through the lens of Together Films where you moved after Altitude, like what was it about that that fit within your ambitions? I remembered what it was like to start at Altitude and I remember how exciting it was to see that company grow. And I think I wanted to try that out again at Together, even though they, they were an already established company, but they hadn't set up a sales division yet I wanted to see what that looked like you know I I was very comfortable at Altitude and I could have very easily stayed there but the idea that I could add acquisitions to an area that I hadn't you know it was it wasn't an area that I had covered before so I was interested in that understanding I I mean I, I knew how to do sales but being on the other side assessing projects and just being out there and meeting with producers more and thinking okay are we the right company for you and can we find a good home for this project so being slightly more across things so not just on the sales side but kind of branching out that's what appealed to me and also the vision of just doing films that had an impact I like the idea that you could be involved with projects that wanted to signal boost a particular area, you know, be it 
access to uh, healthcare for women, be it climate change. Film is just such a great way of getting messages out there that don't necessarily feel like they're beating people over the head with it. And the idea that I could be involved with these types of filmmakers and these types of stories was really appealing to me. And talk to me a little bit about how acquisitions and sales interact, you know, what's different about them? Are you approaching those kind of two sides of the business differently? Are they informing one another? I feel like, you know, they sometimes get lumped together, like you do work in sales and acquisitions, but I feel like they are more different than perhaps we give them credit for. There are acquisitions people that sell and there are acquisitions people that don't. When you have an acquisitions person that doesn't sell, they definitely have more bandwidth to be able to look at more projects. You know, there's more outreach. They can, they just have more time to read scripts, set up meetings with producers, see what else is out there. But it's always really important when you're acquiring for sales that those two departments are aligned, that the acquisitions person, even if they're not doing the day-to-day selling, has an understanding of what the marketplace is because there's no point picking up a title and going guys I've got this really amazing title from this really exciting filmmaker and the sales team just go okay but no one's gonna buy this film or you know it or we're not the right home for it you you know of the our clients aren't the clients that are going to pick up that title that's not to say there isn't a home for a film but it might not be with us so it it is really important that acquisitions and sales align and I would say the same on the distribution side you know you need to know what your company can do what the reach of that film is maybe it's film that like is super commercial and and really great but maybe you're just not you know you don't have you don't have enough support to be able to release that kind of film um so it's just having that understanding of you know other aspects of of that film value chain to understand and inform the decisions you make in acquisitions. And as of 2023, I know you're now the senior executive for sales and distribution for the BFI Filmmaking Fund. So talk to me about why that opportunity appealed to you and a little bit more about what the function of the role is, because I know it's a newly created position. So that must sort of change things as well. It was a position that was previously held by Katie Allen. So not newly created, but something I stepped into. But yes, it was, it was actually, when I talked previously before about reaching out to companies and saying oh do you have something you know what does that look like this was actually a position that was advertised um so that felt like quite a new experience to apply for something but I think having worked in international sales and distribution for the vast majority of my career I once again wanted to do something different and take on new challenges so when the when the sales and distribution exec role came up I I just felt like I I had to go for it say from a professional development standpoint I again saw an opportunity for growth as you know the the role would allow me to look at sales and distribution but this time from the view of a public funder which was new and different and you know also just selfishly the BFI work with world-class filmmakers exciting new voices and I just wanted to be a part of that in relation to my particular role, so the senior sales and distribution exec role, it straddles the production finance team and the filmmaking fund. So I'm responsible for being across the sales and distribution strategy of BFI funded titles, which means liaising with producers, sales agents and distributors to to strategize about what the rollout of a film looks like, maybe at festivals or its release date, the size of the release and also any marketing and publicity plans. 
that sounds quite granular in the sense that you're thinking about each particular title and where to situate it and position it. But what about the broader strategy? Do you have a set of goals that you need or want to achieve for the BFI? Like how are you envisaging that kind of that strand or that aspect of the BFI and and how you go about achieving that? It's an exciting time to be at the BFI because there is a new 10-year strategy and we do have new team members coming into the organisation. The BFI has laid out its vision for the next decade, which does guide the work that we do at the Filmmaking Fund. So, you know, the, the, the ambition is certainly to develop the skills, talent and opportunities across that film value chain and we look at how we can support filmmakers and 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 bring their stories to life and reach new audiences Uh, you can certainly read more about it online we have our priorities and and, and guidelines up there but you know it involves uh, experiencing screen culture um having a skilled and representative workforce and just success in this this changing landscape and in terms of some of our core priorities that you know cut across and guide the work that we do obviously there's equity diversity and inclusion and addressing underrepresentation, ensuring that projects are uk-wide so you know not just focusing on on stories and talent in london the southeast and also environmental sustainability and how we address that from both a creative standpoint and a practical standpoint. Well, speaking of underrepresentation, now feels like a good time to segue to something you do outside of work, which is um, the kind of organisation Milk Tea, which you co-founded with former podcast guest Chi Tai. Talk to me about what is Milk Tea? What do you do? Like, how would you describe that initiative? I, I love talking about Milk Tea. It makes me so happy. It's just this wonderful thing that Chi and I have created and we're an organization that seeks to spotlight east and southeast asian talent so both in front of and behind the camera and Chi and I we realized that there was just such a lack of east and southeast asian representation in particular in this country and we wanted to do something about it so we started putting on screenings and events and started building an audience and a community. But it's it's just really celebratory. There just are so few EC titles and in particular British EC titles. And we wanted to not only just speak to our audience who are often who often don't feel spoken to, you know, there are often times where there might be an EC title, but they don't feel as though that it's being marketed to them, even though it reflects their lived experience. And we wanted to to make sure that we built a community and that, you know, we, we understood what the film was and how it hits differently in our community. And I think to be able to watch a film with someone on screen who looks like you or has that shared lived experience surrounded by your own community is so powerful. And I every time we put on a screening, I just come away with a real sense of pride and achievement at what she and I have done. The number of people that keep coming to our screenings, that tell their friends about our screenings, you know, it's predominantly an EC audience, but it's also breaking outside of that because it just, I think we just have a lot of fun at our screenings. We try and create an event around them. So whether it's, you know, we put together either like panel discussions or we gave away like tem- out temporary tattoos at our Joyride screening recently. We had an exclusive preview screening of the first two episodes of 
beef and we thought oh you know let's like it's all about that kind of internalized rage and what better way to express that than just to have like a really cathartic experience so one of our volunteers Cynthia made this enormous pinata shaped like a bull (laughs) and we invited audience members to come up afterwards and just beat the living daylights out of it and it was so much fun and I was I'm because I'm quite introverted and I said she was like no one's gonna come up on stage like this is just so embarrassing no one is gonna stand in front of like a hundred people with you know this foam bat and beat this pinata she's like you just have some faith and I was like okay and then there was just a queue of people that were desperate to get up on stage and just like release some of that pent-up aggression so you know I I'm constantly surprised at the reception we get to these events and I just really want to see it grow and I and I want us to be able to show that there is an audience for EC films in this country and that you know we we want distributors to pick up these titles and we want them to release them and we want them to speak to us and we want to help them know that we're here yeah And presumably, I mean, you and she are both very busy people. So presumably it's that sense of fun and pride that motivates you and and keeps you doing it when it obviously is additional and probably lots of work. It is difficult. I would say that I don't really have a great work-life balance at the moment. I need to be better at that. It is difficult because I want to give a lot, you know, to the BFI. I think being there will allow me to help filmmakers using the knowledge I have. And I also want to help our community. So there are times where I find myself working late into the night. I'm just, you know, trying to put stuff out on... We're we're planning a screening at the moment for Past Lives, which, oh, it's such a great title. Um, But, you know, I'm, I'm having to sort of work evenings and weekends. And I just need to find kind of a a better way a better balance I think I've also appreciated how difficult it is for working parents I have I, I just found things much harder after having a child because you can't be as selfish with your time anymore there are other people that rely on you but I make it work and I enjoy what I do so it doesn't always feel like you know a chore but I I am mindful that I do need to look out for myself and I do need to make sure that, you know, I, I actually down tools from time to time. Yeah, absolutely. So in order to continue doing the work, you know, it's not as though stepping back, you know, is, is necessarily going to inhibit the work in some ways. It will only prolong it. I'm also wondering, you know, in, in the context of Milk Tea, like if you've seen a change in the types of stories that are being told in the last few years, do you feel like representation of the kind of EC community is, you know, diversifying and, and becoming more representative? Like, do you feel like you're part of that work as well in the sense that because you're showing that there's an audience for it, those kind of stories are only going to proliferate? I think so. I think that there are certainly more EC titles now EC titles made by the diaspora, I should say, than there have been previously. I think previously people's perception of EC titles has been, you know, what what are the auteur filmmakers making? And they spoke to a very specific audience. And I didn't see enough EC titles or EC filmmakers in the diaspora making films about what our experience looks like. So, you know, having something like Crazy Rich Asians 
even though I, even though it doesn't reflect my life and, and bank balance, to be able to have an English language title with you no know, majority Asian cast that spoke about what it was like was really, really exciting. And I think that's only that's only grown from there. So everything everywhere all at once was another amazing title. And I know not everyone was a fan. I don't know why. I just thought it was amazing. But it just really hit differently in the Asian community. And I would just like to see more of that. I I think the Americans are, they're better at it in the sense that, you know, when we talk about these English language EC titles, they're almost always from America. And that's great. And, you know, there's, there's obviously a lot more of them. And America has, you know, always dominated the, the film scene. But I want to see British EC filmmakers make those kinds of films. And it's still incredibly frustrating to us that we can count on, like, maybe, I don't know, there might be, in the last 10 years, there's just been, I mean, a handful, a handful of titles that have been theatrically released by British EC directors and that's a crying shame um, because the talent is here and we have amazing stories to tell but for some reason they're just not breaking through in the same way as their American counterparts I desperately desperately want to see that change when they are in existence they do feel much smaller in kind of scale and I guess therefore budget than as you say their American counterparts as well it does feel like you know the films like Joyride and Crazy Rich Asians are you know indicative of uh, commissioners and producers in America willing to take bigger risks and it feels like we're not yeah we haven't quite seen that same level of risk happen here in the UK. I understand how difficult financing an independent film is it's only got much much harder because again if those further down the chain are becoming more I don't like saying risk adverse because I don't think of these titles as risk you know I I don't want to feel like independent films are risky I you know I don't you know I don't think that's fair I think what I mean to say is that perhaps they are perceived as more challenging and more risky and I, I fully appreciate how difficult it is to get a film off the ground. And because costs of making films have only gone up, the amount of, of funding available hasn't matched that. So I do sympathise, but I take comfort in the fact that I feel that there has been a lot of change over the last 10 years and that there there are more opportunities for filmmakers. And she and I had this great program called Mixtape where we showcase British EC filmmakers uh, who have done short films so we put on a special program and we also try and tour it around the UK as well to show not just members of the public but also people in the industry that hey we have these filmmakers here we have writers we have directors we have cinematographers they are waiting for the next big thing and it would just be great if someone could give them a chance. And I would love to uh, know if there's a piece of advice or something that has guided you throughout your career that you kind of come back to and think of, you know, particularly on the difficult days. Don't let the bastards grind you down. (laughs) It's not always been easy working in the industry. It's not always been easy being a woman. It's also not always been easy being from an East Asian background. You often feel that there are times where you might be the only kind of non-white face in a room. There might be times where you're having to face misogyny. But I take comfort in the fact that 
I know that there are some amazing people out there that I've had the pleasure of working with that are really supportive and really believe in independent film and supporting filmmakers and trying to make a difference in our own way. So it's just, you know, sometimes just brushing things off and going, look, I just need to be confident about the work I do and what I'm trying to achieve. And sometimes the industry can feel like you're trying to move a tanker. It just can feel very, very slow. But I do see the light at the end of the tunnel and I do see moments of real joy and opportunity. And those are the things that I I cling on to. And also like, you know, I like a good fight. I, I want to be able to be part of that conversation. I I want to be able to, I think looking back, I'd like someone to say, oh, you know, Vicky, like she really tried to kind of change things. I think, you know, if we, if we think back about legacy, that's what I'd like people to say about me. So just knowing what I want to achieve and, and how far I've come and we've come and knowing how much more there is to achieve, I think gives me real hope. So just, you know, standing firm and I, you know, I, I, I do feel like I am one of the lucky ones. I know there are a lot of people that have really tried to make it go the industry, but just find it really hard. And I still think we could be so much better in providing opportunities for people. I think at the moment, when I look at new entrants into the industry, not all of them, but, and I, and I can't speak for filmmakers because again, you know, my expertise lies on the kind of more business side of things, but I look at people and go, why is the pool of people that we're choosing from so small? It just seems like such a waste that there are people out there who maybe don't have just the finances to be able to get their foot in the door. I was really lucky and I I completely understand that I was in a position that I found myself in a position that not a lot of people can find themselves in. I did have the support of my family, but I don't, I, you know, I don't want to kind of pull the ladder up behind me. I want to make sure that there are other people that, you know, other people that maybe don't have the opportunity to go to film school or don't know anyone in the film industry that they don't feel like it's so inaccessible. Absolutely. I think that's so important. And I'd love to know what not letting the bastards grind you down looks like, you know, on a day to day. How do you, you know, hold that in the front of your mind? I just, I think over the years have learned that you're not going to please everyone and you can't please everyone. And people might be disappointed in the decisions that you make or don't make. But at the end of the day, I think like people in the industry, like we're doing the best we can with the resources that we have. And, you know, there are people that that might think, oh, I don't know, it could be just comments about the, the types of films that, you know, you try and pick up and support, you know, even people that have kind of looked at the work I do and gone, oh, you know, but it just feels like a small thing that you're trying to do. And it's like, but that's okay, because you know, at least I'm, I'm doing something, you know, I would rather try, uh, hopefully not fail, but you know, I'd rather try than like not try at all. But I think I, I, I feel that because I've been able to have, because I've had a career that allows me to look at different parts 
of the film industry, even though I, I concentrated in sales, but it allowed me to look at each end of that of that value chain. It gives me a really a great appreciation for just how hard it is at every step of the way. And I think we just need to understand that you know, when we work in the independent world, that each link in that chain is really valuable and you have to collaborate and trust the people that specialize in those different areas because it, it does take a, a lot of people to make a film and to kind of you know push it through and get it in front of audiences and we're all trying to move this thing along and it and it and it's really hard but you know I think we just have to be respectful of of people and different opinions and you know there are times where I've been challenged by my opinion and there are times where maybe I stood firm on how I feel but there are other times where I feel like you know actually I'm glad someone said something because I I can now appreciate things from their point of view and looking at things through a different lens and just being a little bit more open to different ideas I know that sounds all kind of very wishy-washy I think it's held me in good stead I you know touch wood I'm still here and hopefully we'll still we'll still keep going. I think that's another reason though why Milk Tea is, you know, has such a beautiful ethos because it is, as you say, about celebration. And sometimes there's a sense, not at the end of a film's kind of or, you know, when a film is being released into the world, you sort of the celebration mentality can sometimes like fall away from that moment of like joy that it's you know you've made it through all these stages and it's here and you know it's it's so bottom line led that I think sometimes yeah we forget to kind of really you know cheer the fact that this film is in existence because you know not it doesn't happen to every film or every project and I think we just need to be better at defining what success looks like you know it's not just about hitting you know millions of pounds at the box office it's not always about a big theatrical release it's not always about getting your film you know on one of the big streaming platforms there are so many different films and different ways to access them and making a film is so bloody hard so the fact that you've actually made one is a massive massive achievement uh and then just getting someone to watch getting someone to pay money to watch to watch a film is is incredible and I think that should be celebrated and yeah I I think sometimes you know people can beat themselves up about going oh you know I I really hope that my film could do this it's like yeah but you know what you've already achieved so much more than most people have and that should be a reason to celebrate and speaking of celebration I would love to know if there's a film by a woman director that you would like to recommend today I did mention it before but only because it's in the forefront of my mind I do have to speak about Past Lives by Celine Song. I cried so much during that film and I really wasn't expecting to. I think the fact that I was someone that moved around quite a bit as a child and that film touches upon maybe roads not taken uh, really hit a nerve and I'm actually I'm looking forward to watching again actually but it's just really lovely um and it you know it's it's just wonderful storytelling and I I hope everyone goes and sees it ideally if not at a milk tea screening then somewhere else on the big screen yeah and with an audience like I think you know it is it's a gentle film, but it is one that I think really warrants that cinema screen kind of scale. Um, and it's also so generous, I found. I think it kind of 
I really felt the sense that it loved all of its characters. Vicky, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been a real treat to have you on. I'm so glad to get to have talked to you. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed this. listening to this episode of best girl grip if you liked what you heard please do rate review and subscribe spread the good word etc if you're interested in other conversations like this look for my episodes with chi tai joanne michael and gabrielle stewart in the meantime have a great week and i'll be back next friday with a brand new episode